0: Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. All right, so we're in Matthew 12, 22, Just like we were talking about with the lizard, the headline is, not the headline, today's headline in the Bible, Jesus, Invisible, battle it out. All right, 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that the fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, um, let's begin by looking at this miracle. It says, a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. He's both blind and mute, and Jesus healed him completely so that he could both talk and see. It says here that the people were astonished at this, Um, your Bible may say amazed, and they began to ask, could this be the son of David? And I think it's important uh, that in these areas, we we have to remember that most everyone knew this man, okay? These are small towns. Everyone knew this man. They knew he was uh, blind and mute. Like, I think nowadays, even when we see a simple trick or we see a magician performing magic, like, we know there's something going on behind the scenes, Right? We, we know that, that it's a trick, and they've that like, what's happened here? It's a clever deception. And I think we're so used to, to this type of thing that we become skeptical when anything out of the ordinary happens. We begin to like, what's the trick? What's happening here? And I think even in churches, when people are healed miraculously, and I've been healed miraculously, I've seen people healed miraculously, uh, we suspect it might not be 100% real. We're like, oh, that person's an actor. That person's not really, doesn't really have the issue. We begin to doubt it. But these situations that we're looking at with Jesus, the people knew that the person being healed had had these issues. They're aware, they know the person's name. So this is something truly miraculous. And at this particular healing, we've seen some healings before, but at this particular healing, there's a big reaction from the witnesses because it says they are astonished. This is the only time in the book of Matthew that he uses the word astonished to describe the people's reaction. It's an s- extreme reaction. And the actual word used is exi- existeme, which is E-X-I-S-T-E-M-E. If you're taking notes, Anna, that's for you. Um, and it means, this, this word they're using for astonished means to be put out of their wits, to be beside themselves. Okay, so astonished doesn't fully describe being out of their wits, being beside themselves. This is like the literal mind's blown type thing. That a very strong reaction to what they were seeing Jesus do, okay? Perhaps the strongest reaction we've seen yet, they immediately begin to talk amongst themselves. This could be this Messiah. Is this him? A very strong reaction to what God has done before their very eyes. And the Pharisees immediately begin to shut it down, immediately. No, 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 no. He's not doing this by the power of God but he's doing this by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan. He's doing this amazing power, this amazing thing by the power of Satan. Don't get too excited. The people had a strong reaction. And so the only thing to counter such a strong reaction is a strong statement of rebuttal. And this isn't, I mean, up to this point, all of their rebuttals against Jesus have been based on law, have been based on their interpretations of the law. And this is not a struggle where they're bringing up the law at all. This is like a purely emotional, unfounded accusation with no evidence to back it up. And in saying this, and saying that he's doing this by the power of the prince of demons, they're actually accusing him of witchcraft and sorcery, which is punishable by death, okay? What they're accusing Jesus of isn't just like they're saying, oh, he's not doing it by God's power. They're actually bringing up an accusation that is punishable by death. And it isn't just an off-the-cuff remark, okay? We read last week in Matthew 12, 13, it said they began to plot to kill Jesus. That's when they began to plot to kill Jesus. And it's funny because last week we were talking about their views on Sabbath and how it it was illegal to plan a journey on the Sabbath because that was work. and, And I think Joe came up to me last week and he's like, isn't plotting a murder considered work on the Sabbath? Like... Yeah, I would think so. That if planning a journey is work, plotting a murder is work, because plotting a murder is so much more work, right? Agree? All right, just check in. All right. So this is a good sign, like that when they're going against, and they do this a lot, they're going against the will of God to help the will of God, right? They believe in their hearts it's wrong to work, to plan on the Sabbath. They've just tried to condemn someone for it, and yet now they do it to kill Jesus because they believe they're doing the work of God. And this is a good way, if you're ever wondering... If you're looking for the will of God, if you're trying to figure out the will of God in your life, what he wants you to do in a situation, if you have to go against the will of God somewhere else in some other corner of your life, if you have to do something that's wrong to make that thing happen, I can guarantee you that's not the will of God. So often I think we go against the will of God to try to make the will of God happen. And then what happens when we get that thing, it falls apart and we wonder why. And it's because it was wrong in the beginning. Because we went against the will of God to try to make the will of God happen. And that just doesn't work that way. So so now we know they're actively trying to kill Jesus. But legally, through their own laws, it's a very civilized murder. Very civilized. Okay. Now, this is not the first exorcism Jesus has done. And it's not the first healing. This statement was obviously their first attempt to kill Jesus. They've never said anything about it before. But now they have this well-thought-out plan, an attack based on what they'd seen him do before. Like, what have we seen him do before? Let's see if we can use that because he's going to do it again. So they're ready. They're ready for when Jesus does this miraculous thing to try to bring him down. And Jesus defends himself by saying, every kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. What this means is, if you're an FSU fan, you should not marry a Gator fan. It's, it's biblical. It's right here. All right? So if Satan drives out Satan, if he's working against himself, how can that kingdom stand? It's tearing itself apart. It would mean there's like a civil war amongst the demons, and Satan does not work against himself. And they know this to be true. The Pharisees know this. They have the Old Testament. They know it. That the argument they have is not based on any precedent in the Bible It's an argument entirely of their own making, which really begins to show their desperation and their willingness to go against what was important to them. The law is important to them, and now they've abandoned even using the law to try to get him. They just, emotional argument, okay? Their whole thing was, we need to get back to the the word. We need to get back to the law. And here they are making accusations that stand in the face of anything they'd ever seen or known about God, okay? And then... He asked them, if I'm driving these demons out by the power of Satan, by whom do your people drive them out? And this tells us, he's saying here, the priests and the Pharisees have performed exorcisms before. And how do they do it? How do do they drive out demons? Do they do it by the power of Satan? Because if you accuse me of this, then we really must begin to question everything and everyone. And if you begin to say that it's by the power of demons that demons are driven out. Does that ever get confusing when I say that? over and over, um, then I'm sure your own people will disagree with that statement. But if what you're seeing is indeed God at work, if the Spirit of God is driving out demons, then what does that mean? There's only two options here. What does that mean? Then it means you have willingly chosen not to see. If the Spirit of God is doing this great thing, what does that mean? Have you thought about it? It means the kingdom of God is upon you. His kingdom is here. His kingdom might just be here in front of your very eyes and you are missing the truth that is being laid out before you. And I think when faced with that question, it's like, would you condemn God himself? Would you condemn God? Have you even thought about it when you're making these accusations? Have you thought, what if he is, what are we doing? If this is God, if this is the Messiah, Do we really want to go against him? He says, if I'm casting out devils, and and this is something that isn't even in question. They're not even saying he's not really doing it. It's not even in question with anyone, not even with the Pharisees. Their their attack is based on how he's doing it. They, They see the healing. They're not refuting it. They're not denying it. He says, if I'm casting out devils, it means that I have invaded the territory of Satan like a burglar stealing from a house. But one cannot steal from a house. One cannot take from the strong man unless the strong man is subdued. Jesus is saying, how can I take what is Satan's unless I am more powerful than him? And who is more powerful than him? But God. And I'm not just taking. I'm plundering. I am plundering. I am tying up the strong man and I am plundering his house. I go into his house and I take whatever I want. He is powerless. He's powerless against me. And We're going to go more into this next week. But this again causes him to bring up that there are only two sides. There is no neutrality. He says, and he says this often. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. If you're not with me, you are against me. Whoever does not gather scatters. There's only two actions. You are gathering or you are scattering. That's, how, that's evidence of who's with them. Whoever is with me, they gather. Whoever is against me, they scatter. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we with him? Are we with him? What's the evidence? I mean, we would say, I would say, I'm with God. I'm with God. What am I gathering? And this isn't about bringing people together, right? Jesus, in all his actions, we, we never see him be like, can't we all just get along? We just want to get together. I think that's some of our ideas about Jesus. He's so lovey-dovey. He's so cute. He just wants to hug and bring everybody together, Right? but he was all about gathering people into the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. Not gathering people together, gathering people into the kingdom of God. Are we gathering people to him? Are we gathering the sheep? Are we seeking out the lost and gathering them to him? Because if we're not actively gathering, then we're scattering. There is no in between. And you may say, well, I mean, I don't actively gather, but I'm not scattering people or driving them away from God. But if you think about it, which I do sometimes, if a flock of sheep, and I know a lot of people are aware of shepherding, so this is a great analogy for all of us, but if a flock of sheep gets out of the fence, right, and they're running away, they'll, they'll go off on their own, and they begin to run away. If you're not chasing them to bring them back, are they not getting further and further away? And aren't we allowing it? We watch. As they get further and further away from the fence, further and further away from safety, and we may not be actively driving them away, but we are allowing them to get further and further away. And they—they they are our charge from Him to gather them. So if you are not actively gathering, you are scattering. We increase by standing there and watching as people get further and further away. We are increasing the chance of their death. Just like a lost sheep, the further they get away from safety, the higher the risk that they will die. And Jesus says, if you're with me, then you're gathering. You're going after my sheep. You're finding the lost. You're bringing them in, and if, you, if you're not bringing them in, the only other option is that you are a participant in scattering the flock. You're an active participant. And everything that he says, he's saying, be careful. Be careful what you're doing, Pharisees. Be sure of what you're doing. Be oh so careful. God is watching. He is not your laws. He is the creator of the law. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is living and he has thoughts about what you're saying and what you're doing. And he says, he will forgive you. He will forgive you for slandering me but he will not forgive blasphemy against the spirit. And here we see Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit as someone separate from himself. And we see him acknowledge that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's done this. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that has tied up the strong man. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that has overcome the power of the enemy. He confirms this. He says it's not me that you're blaspheming. You're not you're not you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And honestly, as Christians, I think when we come across verses like this, we go, well, that's weird. An unforgivable sin? Mm." I mean, isn't Jesus' blood strong enough to to wash away any and all sin? How can there be a sin that's unforgivable? It's quite alarming. It's quite alarming that Jesus would say something like this. And and, and you might start to wonder, have I ever done that? What's he talking about? Is there something I've done that's unforgivable? It's it's so alarming, in fact, and we start to think about it, so alarming that we it's driven many of us to think, well, I don't I don't think we can take Jesus quite literally there. In fact, in, in a lot of commentaries, they say, Well, we can't quite take Jesus literally here, and I'll explain why. Right? And I don't know if they're British, it just sounds really distinguished. But that's that they say we can't take this literally. And I just want to say, if you're reading the word of God, if you're reading the word of God and your reaction to it, when you read something that is hard and your reaction is, I don't think that's literal. I don't think Jesus really means that. I don't think God really means that. That's the beginning of error. That is the beginning of error. Okay? So let's eliminate that as an option for an interpretation of Jesus's words. Let's just eliminate that. So what could Jesus mean by saying there is an unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, here's an option. And this is true. Um, The Holy Spirit reveals truth. The Holy Spirit helps us to recognize and discern the word of God. We hear about Jesus and what he's done, We read about God and who he is, but it's the Holy Spirit that speaks to our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that calls us to him. It's the Holy Spirit that reveals God. Most of us can probably attest that when we finally came and accepted Jesus to our hearts, that the Holy Spirit had already begun a work in us. God had already begun speaking to us, already breaking down this point to where we were like, oh, man. God's doing something here. God is doing something. I mean, even Ryan the other day gave a testimony and and one of his um, coworkers was saying, I don't know what's happening, but something is happening in me. That's the Holy Spirit beginning his work, okay? And if we shut our eyes, we shut our eyes and close off our ears to the Holy Spirit, we begin to lose our sense of right and wrong. We become a little bit more numb to sin. As a believer, the Holy Spirit points out our sin. He convicts us. The Holy Spirit will tell us actions that need to be taken or, or sin that, sins that need to be removed. It's the Holy Spirit. Joe was talking about it. It was awesome. I went right along with what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit points out sin that has to be removed. But if you hear God, if you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you about a sin, it's pushing your heart a little bit in direction, and we refuse to listen I think we can all confirm, because we go through periods of time in our life where we refuse to listen. We all do it. Not me, because I'm a pastor, but you guys. No, I'm just kidding. Me too. And you refuse to listen, right? What happens? The voice gets quieter and quieter. Quieter and quieter. And and I've said this a million times. I always say it, and I will always say it, um, because it might be the smartest thing I've ever said. I'm very proud of it. But... I'm glad Daisy didn't laugh. When she laughs hard, you're like, honey, is that the smartest thing I've ever said? Well, um, but people always come to me and say, I'm having trouble hearing the voice of God. Well, I used to be able to hear him. I can't hear him anymore. And I always say, what's the last thing he told you to do? And they think, and I go, did you do it? And they always go, hmm. I said, so you know the last thing he spoke and you didn't do it. Go do it and see if you begin to hear his voice again. Because he doesn't need to speak. He's told you what to do. And every time when they go and do it, I, one girl I remember in high school came up and she's like. Ah, ah, ah. And I was like, okay, hey, calm down. First of all, No. Like, let me guess. You made the cheerleading squad. No. Um, and she was like, I hear, I can hear him again. I can hear him again. I went and did it. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. And we can see in many ways that the world has closed off itself to the voice of God, right? To the word of God. We've closed ourselves off. And as we do, I think we can all attest to the fact that as we close ourselves off to God, we get further and further away from him and our sense of right and wrong becomes perverted. Our sense of right and wrong becomes perverted. And if we are so cut off from him, if we refuse to listen to him, if we are so cut off from him, then we have no conviction of right and wrong. And if we have no conviction of right and wrong, and we don't know when we're in the wrong, we will never repent. And if we cannot, we don't repent, we cannot be forgiven. We can accept Jesus the man. We can accept he existed, that he was a great man, a great prophet, and still deny that he was the son of God. We can deny that it was the spirit of God at work in him and through him. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way. And it is not our belief in the greatness of Jesus. It's not our belief in the greatness of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. It's acceptance of him as a son of God who died on the cross for our sins. But there's one more element to this. There's one more element to this. Because I'm very cautious to say, you know, when Jesus says the unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, I'm very cautious to say this is what he means exactly. Don't worry about anything else. And I'm always cautious when people do say that. Because I think we need to continually seek out the truth, what Jesus says. All right? But something is happening here. These Pharisees are calling the power of the Holy Spirit, they are labeling it as the power of Satan. They're calling God's work the work of Satan. And these people know God, theoretically, right? Their their job is to know God. They've studied his word. They have everything they can possibly have to know who he is, okay? And they were actively trying to push others away from God, to push them away from God. And some of them were fooled by others. Some of them, are, are they have leaders and they're fooled, but and they're making a mistake. But I can guarantee you, some of them, had a suspicion of who he might be. If they'd studied the word and studied the prophets and studied the prophecies, then some of them had a suspicion of who he might be. And there's only two options here. And, and if you think about it, the Pharisees, I mean, in every story, are the Pharisees there? Because, I mean, we do a Bible study with our kids, and it's, like, on an app. And, like, every time there's, like, a miracle or something, the Pharisees are over here, and if you, like, press on them, they go, like, over here, over here, here and they're just like grumbling and they think it's hilarious and they press it all the time and the the Pharisees are just grumbling throughout the the Bible story um it's just training kids' day the Pharisees you know praise God um and they're like bad bad Pharisees are bad right the Pharisees are at every single It seems they are every single miracle, right? If you could say, who witnessed the most miracles by Jesus, it probably wouldn't come to mind, but you'd be like, the disciples. Second, the Pharisees. Because they're there to disprove them. They've seen tons of his works. They could have been some of the greatest witnesses to what Jesus was doing and who he was. But they decided to oppose him. They decided to scatter the sheep he was gathering, and people's eternities are at stake. People's eternities are at stake. Lives are at stake here. Knowing or suspecting who Jesus might be and still opposing God on purpose to scatter the sheep. This is what some of them were doing. And why would they do that? Like, what? What would make you automatically, when you, when you see, you know there's a Messiah coming and there's a Messiah there and everything he speaks is like, and he's doing miracles. And like, I'm just going to keep saying things and going, and like, and like things are happening. And like, you know, can we use that as a blurb this week? Um, why would they do that? Why would they instantly oppose him? Why wouldn't they even think for a second? We need to analyze this. We need to look at this. We need to study. We need to go back to the word. We need to see if this aligns. I mean, if you you fear God, you're like, I I need to see. Sometimes we see things happening. I talked about miracles in church. Sometimes we see things happening and we're like, man, if this is of God, I want it. This is of God, I want it. That's of God, I want it. And every time I've done that, I've gone and I've, I've been like, Lord, if this is of you, I want it. And I got it. And I was like, that was of you. Thank you. That was awesome. That was awesome. But sometimes we just close ourselves off. And we're like, Ugh. we don't like, I don't even know if this is biblical. I don't even know what makes me uncomfortable. Right? Instead of saying, if this is of God, I want it. And they don't have that, that heart of like, if this is of God, I want it. If this is of God, I want more of him. So why would they just cut themselves off? Because what's being threatened by Jesus? Their power. Their power. Their authority. Their little mini kingdoms, their followers, they're protecting their little kingdoms. We all do that sometimes. We protect our little kingdoms. Regardless of what God is doing, what God is saying, you say, whoa, 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 whoa. That that kind of takes away from me. If there's a revival down the street, man, and I'm a, lot, a lot of people, like, let's go to that, man, let's send our people out, let's go to revival, God's moving, miracles are, are happening. But then you see other people being like, no, 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 I don't, I don't, and it's like, and I'm not saying, like, we shouldn't be cautious, but I'm, I'm saying, like, some people like, no, no, let's not, let's not go there, because then you might go there, and then, like, then you might stay there at that church, and then, like, what am I going to do? You know, we protect our little kingdoms, protect our places of power. And what what does God say about this? What does God say about this? In Ezekiel 34, 1 through 56, it says, I'm not reading all that. I'm just kidding. Um, Ezekiel 34, 2 through I'm going to read a lot, but now it's not as bad because I made you think it was a lot more. It's psychological. All right. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gathered. Paraphrase me. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Scattered. So they were scattered. Oh, it's already there. Thank you, Jesus. You're so good. You're ahead of me. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, that seems like a pretty good promise. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock. It doesn't say just scattered, it said they didn't search for the flock. Don't you just love all my things I add in this? It's like I talk during the movie. Um, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them I will shepherd the flock with justice. It was like a precursor to why Jesus is here. I'm going to take care of my sheep. It'll be done. If you don't do it, I will do it. It will be done because I love my sheep. He says, I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable. I think sometimes we think of Jesus as a lovey-dovey one and God as, like, judgmental, or the God of justice. Uh, So often I've even heard that, like, I I don't even see the correlation between the Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus. It just seems so different. But we see in these statements that Jesus says they sound harsh, but they're direct, and they're truthful. And he says, do not do this. And you can even see him alluding to this verse in the talking of gathering and scattering. He's like, remember... But what I said in Ezekiel, this is the same God. This is the same God. Now, true, he died on the cross for our sins, and he is full of grace and mercy. But this is the same God. And when Jesus says things like this, we can't just wash them away. We just can't just be like, oh, I don't think he takes it literally. And the point here, Jesus is very, very serious. That's the point. Let's pray. No. um. He's very serious. He's very serious about the Holy Spirit. And sometimes statements like this from Jesus, when we hear it from God, we're like, oh, yeah, but that was for Jesus. That was for Jesus. <laughs> Good thing. But statements like Jesus, that Jesus says like this, can be kind of scary. And, and we can't, sometimes we just push that fear aside and say that it's just a feeling. We shouldn't associate fear, that feeling of fear, with our Lord and Savior. But we should associate fear with our Lord and Savior, because we have to have the fear of the Lord. We have to have the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the very beginning. Fear of the Lord. It's the, it is the um, foundation The fear of the Lord is the foundation on which everything else must be built. It is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding him. And we'll never understand him completely, but it's the beginning of starting to understand who God is, understanding his word, understanding the wise, understanding the Holy Spirit, understanding what we're here for. The beginning of true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I think we've lost our fear of the Lord. In our attempt... To to make him, and he does love us. He does love us. He he died on the cross for our sins that we could be forgiven. He draws us near to him. But but we try to make him into a buddy-buddy. And he's more than that. He's God. He's still God. The things he says are still the word of the Lord. He is still God. I think that we, we see Christians and priests and pastors and denominations changing what the Bible says and opposing what the Bible says, deconstructing, and all these actions begin when we don't fear the Lord. It begins when we don't fear the Lord, when we feel like we have the authority to change the Bible and go a different way. It's because we do not fear the Lord. And and this isn't the first time we can look in our society and say, oh, nobody fears the Lord. But it was happening then. That's what Jesus is addressing now. You don't fear God enough to seek out the truth. You don't fear God enough to seek out and really care like, hey, am I going against God here? I really need to seek and see if this is of God or not. We have forgotten who he is. I read a book growing up, and it wasn't, wasn't a good book. I don't, I don't recommend it. Um, but Stephen King had a lot of good things to say about God. Um, no, but there's this thing where it's like, um, you've forgotten the face of your father. And even when I was running from God, that, like, it's like you're reading a Stephen King book, and it's like, you've forgotten the face of the father, and I was like, I've forgotten the face of God. And you're like, leave me alone. I'm trying to read a book. I'm just trying to read a book. It's got nothing to do with you. Stay out of my business. But I think... In many ways we've forgotten the face of our Father. And we've built idols up of ourselves. We treat him we treat him as an afterthought or a genie that we go to when we need something, but he is God. He is God. And he's very serious about a sheep. He is serious about the loss. and it's because of his great love. Don't forget his love, but still, this is God. He is holy. And he's righteous. He's a God of justice. He's the beginning of the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He is God. He is holy. Let that sink in. He is, oh, he is so holy. He's the living God. And I think it's something we have lost touch with. We have forgotten who he is. He is holy. I think even, and I'm not condemning this in any way because I do it. I think we want people to pray so bad. They were like, oh, just talk to God wherever you are. Just walk and talk, you know? And I do that, and you should. You should talk to God wherever you are. But I think there is something to praying on your knees. I think there's something. I don't think we should abandon it entirely because on our knees is a sign of surrender. On on your knees is a sign of like, you are God. You are holy. I am your vessel. I surrender. I am on my knees before you, the living God. And I think it's a good practice for us to return to our knees, not just physically, but return to our knees spiritually. He's on the throne where we, we don't place him there, but we should honor him as if he is the one on the throne because he is the one on the throne. He is holy. Do not forget the face of your father. And I think as a church, as a global church, as the church that we are a part of, I think we have forgotten the face of our Father. We have forgotten who He is. We've forgotten a whole side of Him. So what I want to do today as a church, and I just want to represent the global church. I want to represent every Christian, all of our brothers and sisters. I want to go on our knees and repent for forgetting who God is. And Daisy's going to play some music because you can't do it in complete silence. That would just be nuts. Morgan's going to turn off the lights because we don't want everyone looking at us, right? Because that also would be nuts. So I just want to invite everyone to get on your knees. You can come up here and get in the aisle if you need to. Go to the back. I just want to get on, get on our knees and repent. And each, each one do it yourself. Do it, to your, do it by yourself, quietly. Lord, we just repent for forgetting who you are, for forgetting your holiness, for forgetting your righteousness, for forgetting your power. because it all starts there, our faith increases when we understand who you are. The power of our prayers increase when we understand who you are. Our fear decreases when we understand who you are. Our joy and our peace increase when we understand who you are. You are God. You are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. You are all-seeing. And though that may make us uncomfortable sometimes, that is who you are. And I just pray over your church, I pray over your people, I pray over us as individuals, Lord, that we would recognize who you are, Lord, that we would recognize your power and your glory and your majesty. And when we worship you, we worship you in spirit and in truth, And when we serve you with all that we are, we give you all that we are, Lord. We just surrender to you. We don't just sing that we surrender to you, we surrender to you. We give you everything that we are. We just thank you and we praise you, Jesus.
1: In Jesus name I
0: pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.